podcast talking all things health technology and NHS IT. Welcome to Digital Health Unplugged. Hello and welcome to another episode of Digital Health Unplugged, hosted by me, Jordan Soloff, news reporter at Digital Health. Today we're going to be looking at the work of Genomics England and how it ties into AI, particularly with our inaugural Digital Health AI and Data event creeping ever closer now. Our guest today will be speaking at the event, so I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Scott, Chief Medical Officer and Acting CEO of Genomics England, and from the 31st of October, the new interim CEO following the departure of Chris Wigley. Richard, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. How are you, first of all? I'm great. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for coming on. Um, First of all, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about your story, kind of how you got into the field of genomics and how you eventually or will soon be becoming the interim CEO of Genomics England? Sure. So I'm a doctor by background. Um, I trained in some medical school in a fairly conventional way, but I have to say I was really into genetics. And we didn't used to call it genomics, but genetics back then at medical school. So I did a project on genetics and did my third year um, sort of scientific bit, very much focused on genetics. But I didn't know that I'd end up so immersed in it. It was just one of those things that captured my imagination. Then I trained through paediatrics, so children's medicine. And I think it was there, actually around the time that the Human Genome Project um, completed, that I clicked that there was something where I could focus on that and actually really bring value. I was working in uh, paediatric oncology wards, for example, I could see kids where I could see how in the future genomics could be really useful. Um, So I then specialised in genomics and I'm now um, a clinical genetics consultant at Great Ormond Street. So I've been a consultant there since uh, 2010. And that's what I still practice. I still do one clinic a month. Um, and I see kids where people suspect they might have a rare genetic condition to help with diagnosis and then planning of their care. Um, and then I, I did a PhD as part of that. During that time, during my PhD, next-gen sequencing, next-generation sequencing, so the, the, the explosion in terms of our capabilities um, to generate sequence data at scale happened. And I realised that actually it was coming to prime time in terms of this being something that you could really use at scale in the health service. Um, so it turns out that the UK government spotted the same thing. And in 2012, um, David Cameron announced the 100,000 Genomes Project and 2013 Genomics England, so 10 years ago, Genomics England was formed. Um, and I joined in 2015 as an expert on rare disease diagnostics. So I was the clinical lead for rare disease there. and as um maybe we'll discuss um during the podcast i've then been on the journey of genomics england since then initially as a sort of expert in terms of the specific areas of medicine and then learning about what it is to try and um really bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone across the health system which is obviously a really complicated um piece and something that we're so well placed to do in um in the uk because of our nhs because of Genomics England's partnership with the NHS. Great, yeah. And kind of for those that maybe don't know too much about Genomics England, could you expand in a bit more detail kind of what the focus is and the kind of key things that you do? 
Yeah, so we're we're a government-owned company. So we're owned by the UK government's Department of Health and Social Care. And we were set up first to deliver this 100,000 genomes project that I mentioned. Um, and that was a research study to really ask um, what the value was of whole genome sequencing in a diagnostic setting in, in routine care and, and what value there was also for research. So that's how we started. And if you like, what we where we've gone is that we've evolved from that, where if you like, we do, I think, sort of two or three big things. So firstly, now, thanks to the 100,000 Genomes Project and thanks to the continual, continued investment from the UK government and from the NHS, we're the first health system in the world, the NHS is, to offer whole genome sequencing routinely as a diagnostic test. And we, Genomics England, provide a service to the NHS to enable um, the sequencing and the data analytics component of that service. So sort of thing one is supporting the direct care in the NHS using genomics and um, for us at the moment, specifically whole genome sequencing. And we do that particularly for people where there's a suspected rare condition or people with particular cancers where whole genome sequencing is, um, is valuable. And that's a real world first. Um, the second area is where people have said yes, that they're happy for their data to be used for um, research. And there's an active choice there that gets routinely offered as part of routine care. Um, we also make their data available, de-identified in a safe haven research environment, we call it a trusted research environment for researchers who've been approved to carry out healthcare research to make new discoveries. Um, and where they find stuff that's relevant to the individuals in question, we can recontact their clinical teams and, um, and they can benefit from those individual discoveries about them. For example, a diagnosis that wasn't yet known um, or a clinical trial they're eligible to. Um, and then like the third big thing that we do is a bit like the 100,000 Genomes Project um, was in the first place. We do sort of large scale proof of concept studies, um, which we're um, looking particularly at sort of three big things at the moment. One of them we'll talk a bit more about perhaps later is our newborn genomes project, which is looking at whether and if so, how should you offer every baby that's born a whole genome sequence? We've got other projects in cancer, um, looking at sort of bringing in other modalities of data alongside the genome. And we've got a big project in the diversity of our data set, which is really important to address because of um, the historical um, fact that um, over the years, much of the investment in genomics has been asymmetrical and particularly towards particular communities and in the West particularly. Fantastic. And um, and how, how would kind of AI fit into all of this? Of course, the whole, the whole field's moving very fast. So how are you kind of driving that or responding to it? So I guess AI is one of those things I've sort of seen through my time, actually, you know, across my career, and it's driven lots of the choices I've personally made. There's these waves of technological change, the new sequencing, the high performance computing capabilities and storage um, capabilities that have come to support that. Um, we see new therapies, um, genomic targeted therapies coming as another wave. And AI, I think, is a sort of in, a, a wave on its own, which you know, alone would be remarkable if you combine it with those other things that are changing in the world and in the world, particularly of genomics and healthcare. It's one where it's not it, it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't you know completely change um, everything we do, turn it entirely on its head. But it's a tool that we can use to address really important questions for us. So if you think about 
you know, what our vision is, is a, is a world where everyone can benefit from genomic healthcare. There are lots of questions in there, lots of them very prosaic and practical um, that you need to work through in terms of the processes from the end to end. And um, we're really well placed to enable the, the research and discovery into what role AI can play to, to help train algorithms and also to learn where it adds the most value. Um, so, for example, even at the sort of level of thinking about um, working out how you can interpret um, clinical data that might help you interpret um, variation in a genome for someone, being using AI machine learning based methods to um, look across clinical data and do that in an automated fashion rather than manual. Um, thinking about how we today interpret genomic data, um, which is the final step of there's lots of automation, and that's what we at Genomics England do. It's in the NHS, um, there are highly trained PhD level clinical scientists who sit there to create the reports that go back to the clinical teams to enable action to be taken on that genomic data. If AI can help us as, if you like, co-pilots um, alongside those clinical scientists to reduce the amount of time they have to spend per case, and in some cases, you know, get towards more and more automation, then that's an enormously powerful thing that for us will help um, us be able to scale the power of genomics, where at the moment we're using it in a certain set of settings in healthcare. As evidence emerges in the coming years, we can see the breadth of potential use of genomics really expanding, and AI is going to be really important in, in enabling us um, to make that possible to, to allow that scale. And just the same, there are you know in research, so much of the discovery um, process um, is really challenging, either time-consuming or just plain hard. And using AI in different ways as a tool to help in that process, um, I think is really powerful. Um, I think there's one, one really nice pair of examples, if you like, about how AI is really changing the world um, already. The first one is AlphaFold from DeepMind that was released a couple of years ago, where they um, working on publicly available um, uh, data sets, generated a, a model that could predict protein structure. Um, just such an enormously powerful tool for a whole range of different areas of research. Um, that same company, DeepMind, worked on a, an algorithm that they call Alpha Missense um, that helps to predict um, the likelihood of a particular type of genetic variation being impactful in terms of causing medical conditions. Um, it's not, it doesn't solve the problem, but what they've um, been exploring is what value it adds in helping us to sort of classify variation. And that's something when they develop that algorithm, we are able to use data they produce to, to look at how that might be useful in the sort of settings we support um, clinical teams. And it's sort of bringing that sort of knowledge to bear to solve practical problems is really mm -hmm. powerful. Absolutely, yeah, some nice examples of there too. Um... UK government, obviously not too long ago, they pledged £21 million for the expansion of AI across NHS trusts. How would you kind of see this impacting patient care and outcomes, this, this pledge, so I guess? I think that um, the, the, the continual investment from the UK government, from the NHS, um, in these sorts of areas has been completely, is really, really critical. And um, Genomics England's 
um, existence and the infrastructure that we've been able to build, I think is a really nice example of the sort of thing that that um, investment will be able to like both build on and um, sort of show similar benefits. So I think it is this system wide thinking to think about what what you can do at scale um, and really addressing the sort of the key um, questions that are there that 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 sort of investment will prime. So the sorts of you know questions that I was talking about, thinking about how um, the different steps in whether it's clinical or research pathways we can tackle um, with with AI based approaches, and also recognizing that there's a lot of activity here in the private sector and sort of and investment from the private sector as well. And I think that will drive um, a lot of uh, the progress that we'll see. Yeah, let me cut. When we talk about AI, I guess, obviously we're talking about very vast data sets, both in clinic and, and in research. How do you kind of go about thinking to use that data wisely? How would you do that? I think this comes back to one of the things which cut, cuts across for us is a really important part of our work across all of those different areas we work in, whether it's um, routine care, um, whether it's research, whether this is proof of concept um, studies. These new technologies have opened the way to all sorts of potential um, benefits. Um, what's equally important is engaging with the public and understanding how it's not just what one could do, it's what people are comfortable with, what the important questions for people, what the um, expectations, for example, around fairness, um, around privacy, um, and um, what people are comfortable with. So, a lot of the work we do across all of our programs is rounded and guided by that and for example by our um, participants we have a participant panel whose data we hold and they sit as part of our formal governance for example as part of the committee that decides who has access to the data in our research environment and for what purposes and i think having that dialogue in all of those different sort of areas that we work and i think ai is a really good example where together as a society, we need to navigate what those expectations are, what the sort of key areas that we should you know, focus our efforts on, but what, what we mean by fairness, you know, and, and what the expectations are, for example, on um, uh, equity in terms of the, the benefits of the use of, um, of these technologies. In some senses, AI is no different to the other things. And I think it comes with some particular expectations and I think again it's a place where um, the UK is really well placed because of the technology because of the previous uh, uh, investment in infrastructure such as ours and, and others um, other great national programs like UK Biobank um, uh, research study called our future health um, but also because of this ability to have a dialogue um, on um, how we should go about things and one, the, one of the programs I, I mentioned earlier that we're doing at the moment um, that we've sort of really seen the benefits of that recently is our newborn genomes program where doing explicitly entering into a dialogue about how we construct the research study is absolutely um, the, like, the right way to go about this and the way to make sure the it's not a matter of sort of clever people sitting in a dark room and deciding what they think that the right and proper thing to do it's actually about the um, that, that word dialogue. Yeah, and you touched on the kind of the newborns program. I'd like to go into a bit more detail about that. Could you kind of tell us a bit more about what that is 
and also how having the ability to sequence babies at birth kind of benefits them throughout their life course. Yeah, so the Newborn Genomes Programme is one um, that we're really, I think, lucky to have in this country and lucky to have the um, government um, investment and the, um, the partnership we at Genomics England have with NHS England to deliver. So the big question here is um, whether, uh, and if so, how should we offer whole genome sequencing to all babies? And what we're doing here is we're responding to something I see as a doctor in clinic um, very often, which is um, rare conditions are um, individually rare, but there are many thousands, in fact, there are thousands of different um, rare conditions, the current estimates, maybe six or 7,000. And they're hard to diagnose. They often diagnose late. The diagnostic odyssey people sometimes refer to is typically five years worldwide. That's a sort of figure that people see in, in advanced health systems, even how long it takes to make a diagnosis. Um, and the big um, thing, which at the moment, because of the technology changes and the, what we can see in terms of the power of whole genome sequencing um, and genomics more generally in rare conditions, is that there's that potential to be able to identify um, children, just as we do for a very particular, much smaller moment in the UK, nine conditions are looked for on the heel prick in every newborn baby using more sort of chemical based tests. What we think is that there's potential to bring additional benefit by using whole genome sequencing to be the way into us looking for maybe um, a couple of hundred plus conditions, um, just like those nine, where there is an ability to confidently diagnose them in newborn babies before um, they um, develop um, many symptoms or sort of irreversible harm that might be avoided. Um, and there's a treatment that's available routinely in the NHS. And that's the big driver is that could this be a tool that sits alongside existing screening? The study also will be looking at some other areas. Um, secondly, you know, today's knowledge means that we think there's 200 plus conditions. And in the study, that's, we'll be looking at um, just over 200 conditions and returning findings on those that sort of fit that pattern that I described, where they're young onset, they're treatable. But we shouldn't rest easy and be comfortable that that list is 200 long. That sounds great. Um, but actually, what we the, the people joining the study will also be um, saying um, that their baby genomes can sit in our national genomic reference uh, research library alongside um, the genomes of those other people who um, say yes to our national genomic consent offer to support research. Um, not to receive findings about other conditions where we're not sure about the treatment, but to help us try and un increase our understanding of those sorts of conditions and wider healthcare um, uh, questions. And hopefully um, mean that that number is much larger than 200 in the future that we might be thinking about. And then there's a third aim, which is around understanding. And here particularly, it's about public attitudes and expectations about the longer term storage of genomic data. Because there's a question here about whether one whether the the right model might be to first sequence a baby's genome for that driven by that need to do the best screening in the newborn period. But is it right to continue to hold their data if we can then continue to use it for healthcare benefit? For example, if they get sick a, a year or two down the line, 
um, and you want to look for a broader range of conditions, is it then actually much better just to have the data that you can look at? And as one as um, more evidence emerges for the value of genomics in routine healthcare, you know, perhaps through into adult life um, for its use as a, if you like, a resource that you can go back to, a data resource that is yours as a patient that your various clinical teams can access. So the project will explore, as I say, predominantly, it's understanding what people's attitudes and expectations are around that, because it's a really important question for us to factor into sort of longer term planning for how this might play out. If it's something where the evidence we generate through the study means that policymakers who are, are not us, we're not the policymakers, we're there to generate evidence that drives future policy. If that evidence says that we should adopt this, we need to ask a whole range of questions and also as a society decide where it is we want to go. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's a really exciting project. I think it'd be interesting to see kind of how that plays out. Um, looking ahead to the future then, you know, we know genomics are going to be, it's going to be very significant. It's going to be impactful. There's no denying that. But how else do you see science and technology enabling better care? I think um, there's a real point here about there's a phrase that people in genomics often use, which is genomic exceptionalism. And they say, oh, genomics, sometimes the mistake, often the mistake we make is to think of genomics as something terribly separate. And I think there's always an importance of recognising what is different about genomics or any other field. But one of the um, real directions of travel that we see is the collision of different fields and the power, the multiplying power of bringing different sorts of field together. So in the future, um, one shouldn't be thinking about, oh, you know, I, I've got this um, piece of advice about the best clinical care for me because I had a genomic test or because I had an X-ray um, or because I had this blood test or because my family history said whatever. It's actually about integrating those different pieces together. Um, it's actually an area where we have a specific program in cancer called our multimodal cancer program where we're bringing in image data of the tumours down a microscope and the tumours on scans alongside the genomic and um, routine clinical data so that we can see if we can spot patterns between those three at the moment predominantly for discovery and research but there obviously there's real potential there for bringing those different things together and I think that bringing together sort of, of different fields and considering them together rather than separately will be really important in terms of us really making an impact in terms of um, healthcare outcomes in the future. Absolutely, yeah. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Richard will be a, an opening keynote speaker at Digital Health AI and Data in a session titled Keynote Transforming Healthcare Through Data and Research. It will offer a glimpse into work at Genomics England and you'll be able to understand more about how these innovative projects leverage data to detect and prevent diseases, facilitating early intervention and treatment. The session will also delve into the future of healthcare where genetic profiles and technology could revolutionise prevention and patient care. So some stuff we've touched on in this episode, but also much, much more. Um, first of all, you're looking forward to attending and speaking at the event. And is there anything else maybe that you'd like to add or tease about what you may speak about in the session? This is final chance now, I guess, to to make people come and, and, and have a listen. No, I'm really excited about um, the programme and, and the session. And I'll be speaking alongside um, Claire Bloomfield from NHS England. And I think one of the things that Claire and I have um, been talking about in advance of the session, I think, was is that point about engagement and really understanding what it is that we're trying to drive and the benefits as a, at a sort of societal level. 
if you like, and thinking about what it is that um, we're collectively shooting for. Um, so I think that's a really nice theme. I think also then, and it's, you know, often these things sound like they get geeky, but they really matter. Um, one of the other themes that I th we think will come out in our joint discussion is about sort of really real care about the quality of the data um, so that the predictions and the learning that we can make is really trustworthy rather than sort of seeing the biases, if you like, in the data. So if you generate um, an image uh, using one system or another in a different part of the country, you can understand that the differences that you're seeing in outcomes are not related to geography, they're related to the biology. And for, in us, for us in genomics, being really careful about making sure that the data is sort of coherent nationally and comparable so that then when you drive the clinical interpretation or the, the discovery science behind it, the data is there um, and really set up in a way where if you're seeing differences, if you're seeing signal um, that might be biologically interesting, you're, you're um, more confident that that's the case rather than it being sort of um, idiosyncratic ripples in the data. And I think, as I say, it sounds geeky, but it's really important in terms of how you think about how you construct the infrastructure to generate and hold that data. Brilliant. Yeah, sounds really interesting. I'm sure it'll be a, a great session. It'll take place on day one of the event, Monday the 30th of October at 9.30am on the data and research stage. So be sure to attend, listeners. Um, we've reached the end of the show. That flew by Richard. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for your time. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. For those attending AI and Data, enjoy the event. We're very excited about it, the inaugural event, of course. We'll be back with another episode shortly after that. Um, until then, take care. Thank you for listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite podcast platform. And to find out about our latest news and events, head to our website, digitalhealth.net.